0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at the aftermath of the Trump Putin summit in Helsinki with one former director of the CIA even fulminating that the US president had committed treason. To consider all this, I'm joined on the line from Washington by the FT's Edward Luce and on the line from Moscow by the FT's Henry Foy. So, Ed, there was this reaction of dismay, outraged from a lot of the American foreign policy establishment, including, I think, quite significantly, a few Republicans, unusual
2: names, such as Newt Gingrich condemning the president's demeanor in Helsinki.
1: Has it calmed down now?
2: Well, Trump, as you know, the day after Helsinki fairly unconvincingly tried to reverse the impression that he endorsed Putin's protestations of innocence of Russian interference in the American election of 2016 over Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence. A Trump appointee who had said that very, very clearly it was the consensus of the American intelligence agencies that there had been Russian electoral sabotage and that it was ongoing and that the state of play today was somewhat similar to the build up to 9-11 in terms of all the warning signals. And so Trump was clearly prompted by Republican outrage in some quarters, fairly muted compared to outrage in all other quarters. To say, actually, he had misspoken and he had meant to use the word wouldn't instead of would. But then the following day, Wednesday, he you know reversed himself again. He was asked, was Russia continuing to interfere in America's electoral system? And he said no, twice. And he then gave an interview to Fox News, his favorite outlet, in which he cast down on Article 5 of NATO that attack on one is an attack on all and said, Montenegro, you know, who's heard of Montenegro? These are aggressive people. Would we want to start World War Three over them? So there is still a lot of private Republican angst over this. But as long as Trump has the base with him, and I suspect you know, the base is all at one with him on Montenegro. I mean, you know, nobody's heard of it. They can't place it on a map, not worth the bones of a single grenadier, etc. As long as the base is with Trump, we're not going to see that much more courage on the part of prominent Republicans. I very much doubt. And Henry,
1: what's the reaction been in Moscow? I saw that even somebody on Russian state television had been saying that Trump had been acting like an agent of the Kremlin.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think initially, we were all asking what the Russian word for schadenfreude was. There was so much positive energy coming out of the Kremlin delegation in Helsinki. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign ministry, said that the summit had gone better than super, which is an almost Trumpian phrase. But that was tempered very quickly when I think the Russian side began to realize this is not a zero-sum game. Seeming to defeat Mr. Trump, if you like, embarrassing him and him getting all the bad headlines back home is not necessarily good for Russia. I mean, Leading up to this summit, the Kremlin had been privately and publicly trying to dampen down expectations, trying to say that they weren't expecting too much. But it's obvious that they were hoping for some kind of progress on something, something to come back to their voters and for Trump to go back to his voters and say, look, working with Russia is possible. Moscow does want to see sanctions eased, it does want to see more trade, more investment from the West and from America. So initially, euphoria that Trump had not raised any of the really difficult things, had said that he agreed with Mr. Putin on hacking, though, of course, as Ed just said, that was later retracted. But now I sort of sense that, well, we're not actually in a better position at all, and perhaps in a worse one, if Congress and other politicians in America make this a lot harder for Mr. Trump to ease any pressure on Moscow.
1: Yeah, so Ed, in a funny way, do you think that at least in the short term, Trump's performance could almost have been counterproductive for Russia because it raised so many hackles in Washington or so many alarm bells that it's going to be even harder to make concessions in the broader government community to Russia.
2: I think Henry makes a very good point, and that's a well-directed question. I mean, There is a sense today, quite similar to what we felt in November 2016 when Trump won, that Putin was like the dog that caught the car. It's like, oh, it caught up with the car. What do you do with it now? If, as seems to be the case, we have a broad, almost unanimous and deepening sense of alarm and outrage in the American foreign policy establishment and including sotto voce, amongst Republicans, then it's going to be extremely difficult for Trump to, say, you know, draw down troops in Germany or, you know, reduce America's joint NATO presence in the Baltic States or, you know, propose the Finlandization of Ukraine. Whatever it is that Putin seeks geostrategically from Trump is, I would agree, going to be far harder for Trump to deliver.
1: And of course, Henry, I mean, I guess that there is an element of blowback on what appears to have been Russian intelligence operations, which succeeded in their own terms, and yet create such a backlash in the West that they've, it seems to me, helped create the isolation of Russia. And there could be more of this to come with the suggestion that the British have now identified specific Russians as behind the poisoning of the Skripals in Salisbury. So presumably, we'll hear more about that. And the fact that Just before the Helsinki summit, Robert Mueller issued 12 indictments against particular Russians, and presumably there's more of that to come. So are they, in some senses in Moscow, braced for further storms ahead?
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Mr. Putin today gave an annual lecture to all the uh, accredited uh, diplomatic corps here, all the foreign ambassadors, where he talked about needing a different positive agenda with the West and essentially blaming what has gone on over the last month on powerful forces, he said, in the U.S., that were quote, ready to sacrifice US-Russia relations to their domestic political interests. I mean, Mr. Putin has gained a lot from the isolation, if you like, of Russia. It allows him to portray the country as under siege, it allows him to enhance his position as a strongman leader and to say to the voters, look, you might not like everything about me, but I'm the best bet you have right now because the rest of the world is against us. However, that does have drawbacks. And increasingly, it's becoming obvious that the Kremlin is not particularly happy with the situation. They do need to see some kind of progress on Western relations. He'd been making good progress with the uh, French President, Mr. Macron, he'd seem to sort of uh, ease tensions with Chancellor Angela Merkel. But this Helsinki summit, I think long term may well be seen in Moscow as a bit of a missed opportunity. And potentially, by not offering Mr. Trump any kind of potential uh, rapprochement, or perhaps Mr. Trump making the mistakes that he did has actually going to have a much larger and a longer term blowback than the initial euphoria as suggested.
1: And Ed, of course, the perennial question is, what is driving President Trump as we remember, President Putin was even asked directly in one of the weirder moments of a very weird press conference, if he had compromising intelligence on Mr. Trump, which he denied. But it struck me that, you know, at least on the surface, a lot of what was driving Trump is his vanity, I mean, his unwillingness to accept any suggestion that his victory against Hillary Clinton was anything other than the product of his own genius.
2: I think that's correct. That is the original sin, the fact that he lost the popular vote, and won the Electoral College vote, and the suggestion that Russia was the difference between the two is something very deep and visceral and neuralgic within Trump. That said, I think it's quite extraordinary, and I have written about this today, the degree to which Trump's critics, which, you know, a vast and growing um, sea of humanity, are using terms such as treason and traitor, about the American president since the joint appearance with Putin on Monday, and the belief that the coincidence of Robert Mueller's latest 12 indictments, the promise of more to come, there is a sense that that's really beginning to intensify now the Mueller process, that there is something more than simply Trump's vanity involved here, whether that's to do with you know the fact that in the 2000s, Trump couldn't borrow from a half-respectable American bank, and had to rely on Russian finance, whether it's to do with something sort of themier, to do with Compromat in a hotel room during the Miss Universe contest in 2013 in Moscow, or something else remains to be seen. My own hunch, and it is purely a hunch, is that the degree of collusion between the Trump campaign, um, between Trump himself, between his family and Roger Stone and other sort of close allies and operatives for Trump and Russian intelligence and Guccifer 2.0, the GRU, etc., was so deep that Trump simply cannot afford to allow a crack of daylight there between him and Putin. He's in an all or nothing situation in which the word treason, I believe, is going to become quite a normal part of the everyday vocabulary.
1: How long can this go on, though? It's like a sort of uh, a reality TV show or a soap opera, which just gets wound up and wound up, and one can't somehow believe in a way that we can live at this sort of fever pitch for another two and a half years. And then, there, of course, there is a legal process that you refer to, the Mueller process. Is it going to reach some sort of climax, or should we just get used to this as political life as usual?
2: Well, part of the answer is implied by your question, Robert Mueller is going to set the pace on some of this. But the other sort of key date to watch, which I think is the end of this perpetual loop that we're in, is November, the midterm elections. What emboldens Trump is the fact that the Republican Party is not speaking out against him for the most part. And when they do, it's in a very sort of caveated terms. If in November the Republicans lose control of one or both chambers of Congress, particularly the House, that will change the incentive of Republican lawmakers. And you might then well see a lot more standing up to Trump. And by the same token, if they retain the control of Congress in November, then it's kind of Trump on steroids, if you can imagine that. He will feel ultra vindicated by what would be a very unusual midterm result. First term presidents almost always see their party lose in their first midterm. If Trump bucks that trend, all bets are off. Well, that's a thought.
1: But uh, let's end with you, Henry, in in Moscow. And of course, President Putin has his own domestic politics. He's just come off the back of a triumphant World Cup, I think it's fair to say. He's had this apparent win in Helsinki, on the other hand, there is domestic rumbling over the increase in the age that people can retire, the pensions, and his popularity ratings were falling when we both last met in Moscow a couple of weeks ago. How easy do you think President Putin feels as he looks ahead to the rest of the year?
0: You're right. I mean, after the euphoria of the World Cup, after the ticker tape was all sort of swept away, you do have this feeling now. And you look at Mr. Putin's popularity rating and the various sort of semi independent and independent pollsters out there are pegging him at around just under 50%, which is much, much down from sort of his highs around 75%. And that's all essentially linked to this pension issue. He's been under a lot of pressure to finally get this pension. This is sort of around a decade's worth of work to try to push up the pension age and make these reforms that are necessary. You talk to people in the Kremlin, they say there are many, many more reform steps that will have to follow that. So Putin needed some kind of progress here. He was really looking for a positive outcome, you know, whether it was on New START, this is the nuclear weapons control regime that's going to run out essentially in two and a half years. And Mr. Putin was really hoping they could get something decided on that something to announce on Syria, or something that him and Trump had agreed on, that would have given him a bit of impetus, I think, to say, not only am I belligerent, but I can also make deals with these people. So I think both presidents came out of Helsinki a little bit wounded and worried about where the future goes, no matter how much Mr. Putin is posturing about his power, if you like, and his strength. And he's still as confident as ever. But there are definitely chinks in his armour
1: as well. Okay, well, with that thought, we'll have to leave it there for now. Thanks very much indeed to Henry Foy in Moscow, to Edward Luce in Washington. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye.